I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. And as we turn there, I'm going to actually begin reading at verse 11, because that will give us the end of Peter's uh, statement, his proclamation to the Sanhedrin, and then we'll see their response in the passage that we're looking at today. So Acts 4, beginning at verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge." For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer. Our great God, we come with gratitude to hear your word once again. Uh, We know that we cannot live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So I ask that you would take every one of these words in Acts 4 and that you would feed us this day. Feed us with faith. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and boldness to speak his name to others. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, this morning I've uh, passed out both notes for the uh, older folks as well as for children, so I hope those are helpful to you as you follow along with the message. We're returning to Acts chapter 4 today, and as a reminder of where we are at in this extended narrative, all of this is the unfolding of the healing miracle that took place in chapter 3. There's a lot of narrative about the response to this one healing miracle of the lame man at the gate beautiful. You may recall, after this man was healed, uh, he went through the temple, praising God and leaping, and then uh, Peter found a great opportunity to preach right in the temple grounds, a remarkable sermon about Jesus, about his resurrection, about his kingship, and, and as you may remember, the Sanhedrin did not like this message at all. They imprisoned Peter and John over overnight and then they brought them back out the next day and they set them before the court and they asked Peter and John to answer for their twofold crime they had they had criminally healed this man and preached Jesus as the source of healing and they needed to answer for it and that is where we pick up today and what i want to focus on especially in this message today is the Lordship of Christ. It is an essential belief of ours as Christians that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And I say essential because I do believe that anybody that wants to change the Christian faith and say Jesus is Lord of some things and not others, that is not a Christian confession. Jesus is Lord of all. 
And as I was looking at the references to, to Lord in the book of Acts, I thought, well, how many times does the word Lord appear in the book of Acts? And thankfully, with modern-day Bible software, it's very easy to get these results within a few seconds. And I found that there are 110 occurrences of the word Lord spread over 28 chapters in the book of Acts, most of which do directly refer to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the lordship of Christ is a very central message in the book of Acts. It's very central to Christian proclamation and belief and practice. And as I was looking through those references to the lordship of Christ, I came to the the summary statement that I think encapsulates uh, what the apostles taught about the lordship of Christ. And you'll find it in Acts chapter 10. In Acts 10 verses 34 through 36 Uh, Peter is preaching to Cornelius' household. Cornelius, that Gentile man who had received the vision. Peter received a vision to go to Cornelius, and then this is what followed. And in the midst of this uh, message to Cornelius, Peter makes this wonderful statement that really encapsulates the point I want to get across to you today. Acts 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, and here's the statement, He is Lord of all. That is the truth claim that the Apostle Peter in the whole book of Acts sets forth. He is Lord of all. Of all. And if Christ is Lord of all, then no authority in heaven, whether angels or demons, and no authority on earth, whether they be kings, governors, supreme courts, or the Jewish Sanhedrin, none of those other authorities can compete with the commands of Jesus Christ. They have no competition whatsoever to the authority of Jesus. Every true Christian believes that Jesus is Lord of all, and every true Christian must live their lives under his lordship. You recall Romans 10 verse 9, what is the saving confession that Paul summarizes for us? What he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Apart from this confession and commitment, there is no Christian faith. There are no followers of Christ without this commitment to the Lordship of Christ. To say that Jesus is Lord is to recognize his authority to command, to tell us what to do. One who is Lord is one who rules and who commands. Perhaps the uh, man that understood this best in the Gospels was the Roman centurion in Luke 7. Do you remember the Roman centurion who desired the healing of his servant? And he really nailed the concept of lordship when he was uh, coming to Jesus with his request. He wanted his servant healed. And, And this man had such faith in the power and the authority of Christ. What did he say? He says to Jesus, I too am a man with authority. I say to soldiers, go, and they go. I say, come, and they come. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's, that's a good conception of lordship. That's a very simple way for us to summarize the lordship of Christ. What Jesus says to us, we do. We ought to do what he says to us. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And so this passage speaks to the lordship of Christ, and the way it does that is by the fact that when the apostles are commanded to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, they say no to these authorities, these, the Sanhedrin, who, who had some degree of real authority, they had some measure of authority, but they say, we must speak of the things that we have heard and seen. We are under the commission of King Jesus. And the apostles throughout Acts never stop, despite all the opposition, despite all the commands and the threats, they do not cease speaking of Jesus. Uh, All the way in Acts 5, verse 42, uh, I love this summary that, that Luke gives us at the end of Acts 5. It says, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. 
That's after two trials and a lot of threats. They did not cease preaching Jesus Christ. Now, as we speak about the Lordship of Christ, as we're going to exposit that in this passage, do remember that there is a world of difference between saying that you believe Jesus is Lord and living in light of that. Our Lord Jesus warns us that on the day of judgment, there will be many, many who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To claim the lordship of Christ is one thing, but to follow through in allegiance to him is another. And one of the ways our real allegiance is tested is through opposition and persecution. When the world comes against us, when people say, you must stop saying that, you must not teach these things anymore or else, this is a test of whether we really live under the lordship of Christ. And let's see then what Peter and John did when they were confronted with this challenge on the part of of the Sanhedrin. So they were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were told to answer for, by what name have you done this healing miracle? What right do you have to walk about the temple grounds and to preach this man Jesus whom we killed just some days ago? What Why are you doing this? And Peter and John, they don't back down. They don't get fearful. They're not concerned at all. And they simply set forth the truth of who Jesus is. They say in verse 12, There's salvation in no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin were taken aback. They thought, where does this boldness come from? Verse 13, it says, They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. It's interesting to consider how they analyze Peter and John here. They're observing that Peter and John are just ordinary daily laborers they're fishermen they're not educated and trained in all the ways of the rabbis they hadn't been to the the best rabbinic schools but they did realize and they came to the right conclusion these men must have been with jesus because they knew the authority with which jesus spoke These men had become mighty in the scriptures through Jesus' instruction, and they had become mighty in boldness because of the work of the Holy Spirit within them. But you can see how the Pharisees uh, would view these things. They, They thought, you couldn't have this boldness apart from some training to think that you would be bold, and and yet you're not educated in all the ways of the rabbis. They They put so much stock in their knowledge. That's how they viewed things. Knowledge was power. If you were trained in the right ways and you had received the right education, you would would be able to speak these things. They thought bold speech was the consequence of rabbinic training and education. Well, the truth of the matter is, no matter how rigorous the learning was in the rabbinic schools, that doesn't automatically yield a courageous heart, does it? Of course not. I mean, any of us can learn a lot of things. It doesn't give us courage, necessarily. We need the Holy Spirit of God to give us courage. The Pharisees and Sadducees throughout the Gospels and in Acts, they pride themselves on their knowledge. It was what they uh, found their confidence in. And I I found many examples of this as I went back through the Gospels. You take, for example, uh, John 7, verses 47 through 48, and here they're arguing against, uh, I think it's Nicodemus, if I remember the context correctly, saying, are you deceived about Jesus too? And it says in John seven forty-seven, the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see their argument. It's an appeal to authority, isn't it? They say, have any of the knowledgeable rulers and Pharisees believed in Jesus? That's what makes it true, is if the knowledgeable people believe in it. And this crowd that doesn't know anything about the law, they're cursed because of their ignorance. 
Oh, it just drips with pride, doesn't it? It just drips with this sense of superiority they have over the people. We see the same thing in John 9. The the leaders, they're confronting the, the blind man. They're saying, how did you get healed? How did this man Jesus do it? And, and he says, well, I don't really know. He put mud on my eyes. I saw once I was blind, but now I see. And, uh, they, and at the end of that conversation, the blind man says in John 9, he says, do you want to believe in him too? And they're very offended by that question. John 9.34, they answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. I guess they weren't completely born in sins. That must be the implication of the way they put this. They were born in sin, maybe, but not completely born in sin. That seems to be the distinction they're drawing. But they're saying, you're just a nothing. You're just a sinner. You can't teach us. We have the truth. Well, despite all of their pride and their knowledge and in their learning, the fact is, they had not known things rightly. Their knowledge had puffed them up, but they were deceived. In fact, of course, pride does deceive, doesn't it? The scriptures tell us knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 8. Now, this isn't to denigrate the appropriate place of knowledge. Of course, the apostles, they had received much true knowledge of the Scriptures through the teaching of Jesus. But it was not their knowledge that gave them boldness. It was the Holy Spirit of God empowering them to deliver that knowledge and that truth to the people. And so what conclusion did they come to? They said, well, they didn't go to our institutions. They're not educated, trained men. So how could they get this boldness? Well, that brings us back to their conclusion in verse 13. They realized that they had been with Jesus. They remembered that Jesus also had not been a credentialed graduate of any of the rabbinic institutions. He was a carpenter from Nazareth, but he spoke with such authority and boldness. And they thought, these men remind us of Jesus. You recall at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does it say in summary after Jesus' great sermon? It says that Jesus taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Which is amazing because you'd think, well, the scribes, of course, they had great authority. They knew the law. I mean, these were the men of authority above all. But he spoke with a unique spiritual power as he spoke the truth to the people. Now, this brings us to one of our first applications, and and the, the application is, how do we get this kind of boldness? How can we speak on behalf of Jesus Christ? The answer is that we need to be with Jesus. And children, this is the first point in your notes, number one. We become more like Jesus by spending time with Jesus, learning from him, and doing what he says. I'll say it again. We become more like Jesus by spending time with Jesus, learning from him, and doing what he says. Now, I'll explain that in just a moment because we might say, well, we weren't, we have not literally in the flesh been with Jesus as these disciples were. And that is true. But do remember that he said he would be with us until the very end of the age. He is with us. Now, what had these disciples received in terms of their training from Jesus? Well, they had not been to the rabbinic schools, but what had they done? They had been in a three-year divinity program with Jesus, hadn't they? We might call it the Sea of Galilee Seminary, if you will. They took classes like Humility 101, when Jesus told them that the greatest among them would be the servant of all. They took Faith in Trials 101 and perhaps 102 and 103. They had a number of these opportunities. Faith in Trials class. When they went through the terrifying storms on the Sea of Galilee and they learned to trust Jesus in their time of need, that was a class that they took, didn't they? And I'll adopt Pastor Kevin's classic phrase, lophology, lophology 101. They learned the power of Christ by looking at the loaves, at the leftover fragments of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They were studying these things. They were commanded to study these things. This was an object for them to learn the truth of God. 
They had a preaching and evangelism practicum, as we might call it, when they were sent out two by two into the cities to preach the kingdom of God and to cast out demons. They actually had to apply what they learned. They took the truth that Jesus had given them, and they went out and they did something with it. Peter, James, and John, they had a special session on the glory of Christ when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. How's that for learning about the doctrine of Christ, to behold Jesus transfigured in his glory? This is amazing instruction, although even there they were still rather dense, as we probably would have been if we were there as well. They received classes on biblical prophecy when they sat on the top of Mount Olives and heard the Olivet Discourse. And after Jesus rose from the dead, it tells us at the beginning of Acts that Jesus spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. What a, what a class that would have been to sit with Jesus for 40 days and learn of the things of the kingdom of God, to learn how to see the Old Testament scriptures come to fulfillment and Jesus himself. Now my point in giving all those examples is to remember that to be with Jesus is the way that we are prepared to speak for him. The key to effective, bold ministry in the present day remains a life of personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we fellowship with Jesus now? We fellowship with Jesus through the means of grace. We fellowship with him through his word. We meditate upon his word. We We fill our hearts and minds with the word of Christ. We seek him in prayer. We partake of the Lord's Supper. It's another means of fellowship with him. And we learn of him. We are instructed in Matthew 11 to take his yoke upon us and to learn from him. And my point in all of this, brothers and sisters, is if you want to grow in speaking for Jesus, you need to have a life of personal fellowship with Jesus. And that is indeed possible through the means of grace. One of the ways that we grow in this life of fellowship with Jesus is actually doing his word. We meditate upon it, but we also do his word. Listen to the words of John fourteen twenty three. Here's a promise that Jesus gives us, I think, of personal fellowship. John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Does that sound like fellowship to you? The Father and the Son will dwell in fellowship with you as you love them, love him and do his word. And so this life of personal fellowship is indeed possible. And the more that we are with Christ... The more that we have that life of personal fellowship and doing the will of Christ, the more we will be equipped to speak for him. And so, brothers and sisters, may we pursue this boldness by being with Jesus. This means receiving from his words, sitting at his feet, doing his commands. And as we do so, we will indeed be strengthened to speak for him just as the apostles were in this passage. Now, after this answer is given by Peter and John, the Sanhedrin, they don't know what to do because these men have not backed down. They're bold in in their presence. They've done this miracle, and they think, what must we do? How can we uh, stop this from continuing on? We need to stop this proclamation of Jesus some way or another. Well, this would have been a perfect opportunity if they had had the body of Jesus to produce it. If they wanted to disprove the preaching on the resurrection, it would have been a perfect time to go down to the tomb or wherever the body had been, according to the theory and the the false perspective of the Jews. They could have gone and they could have grabbed the body and they'd say, here's the body of Jesus. He did not rise from the dead. But notably, they can't do that. Why? Because Jesus really did rise from the dead. There's no body to be taken. There's no body to be had. They cannot refute these things. And so they have to go into a private meeting. They, they put the Peter and John out. They make sure the crowd's not seeing any of this. And they say, we need to have a private meeting. Because this is really awkward for them. What are they going to do? Acts 4, 4, 15 through 18. Let's look at how they deliberated. But when they had commanded them to go... Aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all 
who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And then look at verse 21. This is the additional threats that they issue in verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. This is really a pitiful response. You see the pitifulness of this situation? They, we, we already analyzed, I think last time, the amazing, uh, sh- the shocking nature of their unbelief. They don't deal with the miracle. They don't refute the miracle. They don't deal with the message. They just don't want to have anything to do with it. And you'll find this if you speak of the things of God with other people who do not believe and do not want to believe the truth. You'll pre- you can present really good logical arguments. You can present biblical arguments. You can present irrefutable arguments for the truth. And people will just say, ah, that's just your opinion. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Let's talk about something else. You see, they had nothing else to do. They had nothing else to say. The only thing they could do was to basically say, stop talking about Jesus or else. We will hurt you if you talk about Jesus. All they have is the brute application of physical force. That's all they have left. You'll find this sometimes in discussions with people. They just start name-calling. It's like, okay, I guess you don't have an argument anymore. We just start calling names and throwing random things out. That's, That's not an argument. They didn't have an argument against the the truth, but they did have weapons. They had swords and clubs and prisons. And and so they said, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we will hurt you. It's not a good argument, but that's all they had. This reminds us of something very important, brothers and sisters. At the end of the day, what can the world do to us if we speak of Jesus? Jesus. All they have is some degree of brute force they can apply. It may be in the job situation. They could fire you. That's all they can do. If that's what you're facing. They can put you in jail. But is that that big of a deal? They could kill you. Is that that big of a deal? It certainly seems to us as we look at the stories of martyrdom. But in light of the promises of the word of God... It's not that big of a deal in light of eternity. It's important to remember that when the world opposes Christ and tries to stop the advance of the gospel, at the end of the day, all they can do is apply brute force to try to stop the spread of the kingdom of God. And that doesn't even work in Acts. Did you notice that as you study Acts? They're imprisoning people and killing people and doing everything they can to stop the gospel. But what keeps happening? The gospel keeps advancing. Even the man that wanted to kill Christians, the Apostle Paul, what happens to him? He is stopped on the road and he is made an apostle of Jesus Christ. How is that for the power of God at work? And our Lord Jesus, he teaches us not to fear the petty threats of mankind. And they are petty in light of the power of Christ. We are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We represent him. We represent, think about this, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. That's an amazing thing. You think of all the great ambassadors that gather at the United Nations, and and you recognize that as they gather at the United Nations, each of those ambassadors, they represent the authority and the military force of their respective nations, right? The United States gathers, and the United Kingdom, and uh, Russia, and they all come together, and the, the, the man or the woman that's standing there as the ambassador for those nations represents the authority and the force of those nations. But guess what? Those are nothing combined. They're nothing compared to the power and authority of Christ, And so this is who we represent as we speak. And our Lord Jesus says in Luke 12, he says, do not fear these threats. Luke 12, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. See, after they've killed you, they're done. That was the extent of their power. 
But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him whom, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we learn to fear God above men. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, Christians fear God and obey God even when ungodly men threaten us. Christians fear God and obey God even when ungodly men threaten us. And this is a manifestation, it's a a sign of our commitment to the Lordship of Christ. When we obey God, despite the threats, we are saying, Jesus is Lord and you are not Lord over me in that way. You cannot command me not to speak of, of Jesus. So that brings us to the third section here of our passage, the response of the apostles. They've been threatened, they've been told they'll be hurt and imprisoned if they keep speaking of Jesus, and how do they respond? Look at verses 19 through 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John, they, they present it as a question or as a challenge to the Sanhedrin. They say, do you think it is right for us to obey you more than God? And as you put it that way, I think that the Sanhedrin knew the obvious answer. They didn't agree with the perspective of the apostles, but they knew the obvious answer. And the obvious answer is, it is never right to obey man above God. In in essence, they say, no, we will not obey your edict. We will keep on speaking of Jesus Christ. Remember that these men received a commission from the risen Lord Jesus. What was their commission? They were commissioned in Matthew 28 to go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But Jesus had prefaced that commission with these words, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go and do this. And so these men knew the authority of Christ was absolutely unchallengeable. We must do what he says. In Luke 24, they received a commission to go into all the world to preach repentance and remission of sins in Christ to all the nations. In Acts chapter 1, you remember the commission that was given in Acts 1 verse 8. He said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they're at right now, in Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. This was what they were called to do. And they were saying, our master told us to do this, so we're going to keep doing it. To disobey this commission would be to disobey God himself. And whenever you are presented with obeying the command of a creature versus obeying the command of God, you always choose God. And obey him. When they're in opposition, often they're not, they're not always in opposition, but when they are in opposition, you obey God. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that there is no authority that can challenge the authority of God himself. And the Bible tells us that all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 22 is another example. Of course, we've already read Matthew 28. Ephesians 1, verse 22. Paul uses the word all a number of times here. It says, He put all things under his feet, his being Jesus, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Paul is telling us that Jesus is Lord of all, and he's Lord of all to the church. I think that that, uh, unexplained phrase to the church has to is telling us that Jesus rules over all for the benefit of his church, for the benefit of his body, whom he redeems out of the world and beautifies throughout history. And so this headship, this lordship of Christ, reminds us that we must resist commands of any earthly authority that makes us to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it means that even when a lawful authority, like a civil magistrate or an elder or a father, if they give you unlawful, ungodly commands that violate the law of God, you should disobey them. 
Now, this has to be, of course, thoughtfully, carefully applied uh, according to the Scriptures. can't be done willy-nilly because we're concerned about obeying God above all. And this is where the classic phrase of our Presbyterian forefathers came from. They, they said, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. They said, you obey God by resisting tyrants who are commanding you to do things that are unlawful or perhaps are not within their jurisdiction. And this is what the apostles are doing. There's many uh, examples along with the apostles of people in Scripture, godly people in Scripture, resisting the commands of state rulers or kings or civil magistrates. Uh, Just recently, we studied in the Sunday evening service, the midwives of the Hebrews, they resisted the unlawful and evil command of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had commanded them that when a baby boy was born, the baby boy was to be killed. And they made up a story about how they couldn't get there fast enough before the boys were born to do the the job. And And the text tells us they feared God. They honored God above the king. One thinks of the prophet Daniel. There was the edict that went out in Babylon. What was the edict that was carefully crafted to get Daniel in trouble? Nobody prays to anybody except King Darius. And then in Daniel 6 verse 10 we read, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, okay, he's not doing this in ignorance, right? He went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God, as was his custom since early days. Here's a man that fears his God and will not listen to the edict of a king who says, you're going to worship me instead of God. This is what faithful servants of the Lord have done throughout history. They knowingly will disobey civil authorities when those civil authorities usurp God's lawful place and they make unlawful commands. Daniel knew that to cease praying to his God would be to violate his commitment to God as his God, as his Lord. In the matter of resisting authorities that give us unlawful commands, whether they're civil magistrates or even church authorities at times, this is a very important topic for every Christian to understand. And I I think that we will have times of testing in the future as to how well we understand these things, how well we apply these principles. I do think that COVID-19 gave us a bit of a test run. It was actually, I think, in many ways, a merciful test run in the sense that the stakes were not as high as they could have been for all of us. Certainly, they were maybe higher for others. Maybe we know there were some pastors that were uh, temporarily put in prison or fined for their commitment to worship the Lord. But I think that COVID-19 gave us some valuable opportunity to learn about these things, to understand these distinctions, and to bring God's word to bear. We need to be able to answer these questions with sound biblical wisdom. We don't want to be lawless because we live under the lordship of Christ. And to learn more about this topic, I'll give you just two book recommendations that you may follow up on, and we'll, we'll return to this topic in future messages as it occurs in Acts. But one very good recent book is called Slaying Leviathan. It's by Glenn Sunshine, and it's basically a short history book that details how Christians have thought about these things since the time of the apostles up until the present and the different um, biblical perspectives they've brought to uh, bear on the matter of civil disobedience, on Christian resistance. And then another excellent uh, book, or even just a booklet, it's very short, is by our brother, Pastor Phil Kaiser. Uh, His short book is called The Divine Right of Resistance. And it gives uh, abundance of scripture uh, proofs to illustrate situations in which we might need to resist authorities in order to obey our God. So I'll, I'll give those to you as recommendations to consider. And as we look at the apostles disobeying the Sanhedrin, I think it brings uh, back to us the importance of understanding Uh, biblical concepts of authority and jurisdictions. And so I want to briefly review that with you. Uh, You've perhaps heard it said from us before, as we've taught about the jurisdictions in Scripture, that the Scriptures set forth for us three basic spheres of authority. Those spheres of authority are the family, the church, and the state. And they each have their respective roles and duties assigned by God. 
But each of these spheres, family, church, and state, is limited by the word of God in terms of what it can do. It can't just do anything it wants. The family can't do whatever it wants. The church can't do whatever it wants. The state can't do whatever it wants. They are all under the authority of King Jesus. Just to give you a few brief examples that we might understand these distinctions. The family, of course, has significant latitude in establishing family rules consistent with God's word. A father or mother may establish and enforce family rules. A mom or dad can say, children, perhaps to their older children that are driving, they can say, you need to be home by 8.30 p.m. And it's lawful for them to establish that rule and to hold their children to account to obey that rule. But it would be unlawful for the church elders to step into all the families and say, we have a new church practice, and that is that all children must be back in their homes at 8.30 p.m., so say the elders. This would not be within our jurisdiction to determine for you. This is a, that's a family jurisdictional question. It's a, a, a family rule that must be applied. Now we can say other things as elders. We can say, you need to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we can expand upon that and give specific applications that the word demands. But we cannot rule your family. We can only bring to you the word of God and what it says about how to rule your family. And then the church. Well, the church has... The power of the keys of the kingdom. Jesus talks about binding and loosing in Matthew 18 and in Matthew 16. And and the church, through the proclamation of the gospel, opens up the kingdom of heaven to sinners. We, We set forth the open kingdom that can be received by faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also a use of those keys through church discipline. When we exercise formal church discipline, when we perhaps remove someone from the membership of the church, we are exercising spiritual authority to say this person, because of their unrepentant, sinful behavior, is not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that the authority of the church is limited. That is, the elders or the deacons, we do, not have, uh, we do not have guns and swords. And you'll notice that we did not build this church with a jailhouse in the back, did we? We don't have that. We don't get to put anybody under church discipline in jail for 30 days until they repent. That's not how the authority of the church is exercised. We don't have physical means to enforce the uh, authority of Christ, but we have spiritual authority. Which, do not forget, is very, very meaningful. And people that are unbelieving, they, they treat the authority of the church as, as rubbish because they say, well, you don't, have, you don't have guns and badges and cars and jails and courts. And we must say, we have something much greater than all of those. The authority of King Jesus. And what he says is far more important than what any police officer can do. So the church exercises real authority. It's a spiritual authority exercised. And thankfully, there's another safeguard here. Let's say you have church elders that are not exercising their authority rightly. Let's say they're willy-nilly putting people under church discipline for things that are not violations of the word of God. Well, what is King Jesus going to do about that? Well, he's going to take care of those elders and stop them from continuing on in that bad path eventually, but he's also going to take care of those that would be subject to unlawful church discipline. He's going to rule in such a situation. King Jesus, is the, he is the Lord of providence. He can fix all of these things that get messed up on a human level. And so we see that exercise of church authority, but then briefly let's talk about civil authority. The civil government can and should enforce God's law with the use of physical power. Romans 13 tells us that he has the sword. He does not bear the sword in vain. Now, when you got swords, you know that the intention of that language is to tell us that the civil magistrate can hurt people lawfully. Sometimes it is necessary for the civil magistrate to exercise the very highest earthly penalty, which is capital punishment. It's, in fact, the most basic civil law in the Bible, according to Genesis 9. It's the very first one given to us. But the civil government cannot take upon itself the role of the church. They can't excommunicate people from the church. And they can't tell the church how to worship. They can't come in and say, you guys on Sunday morning have to say this thing. You need to pledge allegiance to the president right at the beginning of your service. They can't come in and say that. We would say no. King Jesus didn't command us to do that. 
Now, what this means for all of us in in connection with the sermon is that Jesus reigns as Lord in all three spheres of government. The family is duty-bound to obey the commands of King Jesus, believing families and unbelieving families. Every church in this world is duty-bound to minister by the authority of Jesus Christ and to apply his word faithfully. And this is the more controversial claim, but the Bible does teach it quite plainly. Every civil authority in the world is duty-bound to honor Jesus Christ as king and to rule according to his commands. This is such an important truth for us as we proclaim the lordship of Christ and as the apostles proclaimed it to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were kind of this quasi-church-state mix. There was some mixing going on here. They, they had authority over the temple grounds and, and they also had some civil enforcement abilities. But they say to the Sanhedrin, no, King Jesus says we must go on and we are not going to listen to you. And this truth of Christ's lordship is such a safeguard to our freedom, isn't it? To know that we ultimately must only please King Jesus first and foremost. Now when you're trying to please a thousand different people with a thousand different competing demands, how difficult is that? It's very difficult to keep up with a thousand competing demands. But if you know that you are to live according to what Jesus has told you to do, then your allegiances and your priorities in a day are quite clear. It was Abraham Kuyper who famously said of Christ's universal lordship, he said, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And this is what the Sanhedrin had to learn that day, was that Jesus' word trumped their word. It's important for us then when we face these competing authorities uh, that come against the truth of Christ to say, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and I will do what he says. A good example of this mindset is expressed by the Presbyterian leader of the Reformation era, Andrew Melville. He was speaking of King James VI of Scotland and and, uh, Andrew Melville was quite clear that King Jesus was more important than King James, even though King James had a role. He said this, There are two kings in Scotland, the one King James, the other Jesus Christ, of whose kingdom James is but a subject and a member. So what is he saying here? He's telling us, King James is under the lordship of Christ. King James answers to Jesus, much contrary to what King James wanted to do at times. Now you remember, all the way back in Acts chapter 2 in the Pentecost sermon, what was the conclusion of that sermon? Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Did you notice what Peter did not say? He didn't say, would you like Jesus to be Lord? Or, language that we're sometimes used to. Would you like to ask Jesus into your heart so that he would become the Lord of your life? Now, of course, it's good. There's, there's some truth in that statement. The truth is you, you need to ultimately submit to the Lordship of Christ. That's true. The problem is that it almost sounds like he becomes Lord when you say he can. And may we not miss the fact that when Peter preached on Pentecost, he didn't say, would anybody like Jesus to be Lord today? He said, Jesus is Lord, repent and believe. He is Lord, therefore, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so this brings us to to remind us, brothers and sisters, that the Lordship of Christ is not an optional thing. It's not something that we can make a decision on if we like the idea or don't like the idea. He is Lord whether you like it or not. Now, I hope that if we are those who have confessed that Jesus is Lord, that we love the Lordship of Christ. We love living in his service. And what I want to close with today is a few motivations for serving Jesus. And as we think about how the apostles stood upon the Lordship of Christ and said, we're not going to obey you, we're going to obey Jesus, what kind of things was it that probably drove them as we think about biblical motivations? 
And, and children, I'll give you point three, and then we'll go to these motivations. Number three, because Jesus is Lord, that means we must serve him all the time with all our heart. We must serve him all the time with all our heart. So as you get up tomorrow, as you think about what you're going to do tomorrow and why you're going to do it, I hope that the motivations that I'm about to list drive you to serve Jesus. And there are four that I want to give you today. The first and most obvious motivation for serving Christ as Lord is because he is the universal Lord of all things. This sort of is a, goes without saying. This is basically what I've been saying for about 30 minutes or so. He is Lord, therefore you must obey him. That's, a, that's an appropriate motivation. And since I've already said so much, I'm going to move on to the second. The second motivation for serving Christ as Lord is because he is worthy of our praise and service. He is worthy of our praise and service. Consider the words of Revelation 5.12 as the people of God cry out. They say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What other adjective could they add? They're just stacking them up. He is worthy of our service, brothers and sisters. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy for us to deny ourselves and live for him. The third motivation for serving Christ as Lord is because he has loved us. And in return, we ought to love him as well. Now, brothers and sisters, remember that we did not love God by nature. We were enemies because of our sin, unreconciled at enmity with him. But though we did not love God by nature, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what will be the strongest compelling motivation that drives us to serve Christ as Lord, to deny ourselves, to do his will? It will be because he has loved us, we so love him in return. It will be when you and I see how desperate our condition was before Christ redeemed us. It will be when we are recognizing the horrible and dangerous pit of sin that we were in and how he redeemed us from that pit that we will love him in return. When our hard hearts are melted by the love of God, then those same hearts will be filled with love for the Savior and we will wake up and we will say, I want to do his will today. We see this in the Gospels. You remember the people that are healed by Jesus and mercifully cared for by Jesus? Oh, you think of uh, Bartimaeus. You remember he, he comes to Jesus earnest for healing. He says, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. He restores his sight. What does it tell us that Bartimaeus did after that? He followed Jesus on the way. The man of the Gatherings, uh, oppressed by demons, legions of demons, he's he is delivered from this oppression. And then what does he want to do? He says, Lord Jesus, that I could come with you. I want to come with you. I want to go wherever you go. And Jesus says, I have something for you to do. Go back to your village and tell them how much God has done for you. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to serve Jesus. Who was it that wept at Jesus' feet with love for him? It was the sinful woman who realized she had been forgiven much and therefore she loved much. Simon uh, the Pharisee, he couldn't make any sense. Why is this woman making such a big deal? She's just making a mess and making a scene of all this. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. You see this woman. When I entered in, you didn't wash my feet. You, you didn't show me this kind of tender affection, but she has washed my feet with her tears and her hair. She's wiped them with her hair. It's because she's forgiven much. And therefore, she loves much. It's when we grasp the immense immensity of God's forgiveness, brothers and sisters, that we get up in the morning and we recognize that the call to serve Jesus as Lord is a thankful and grateful motivation that we have to serve him. Now, the fourth and final motivation is this. Serve Christ for the sake of your own joy. And I think we find this in the scriptures. 
you might ask me, uh, if you say, well, I've, I've had a hard week, very little joy in the home, how do I find joy? Jesus would say, serve him. Do his will. You will find joy in serving him. John fifteen eleven through 12. If you ever notice the connection between these two verses? So look at what he promises in verse 11 and then the application he gives in verse 12. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see the connection. How do we experience that fullness of joy as we serve Christ? We we, We experience it by doing the will of Christ every single day. And what is his will? What is his really big command? That we love one another just as he has loved us. The commands of Jesus are the very pathway to joy. The commands of Jesus are not these onerous difficult burdens that will just leave you feeling low and depressed after you do them. Have you ever felt like that after you did something loving? Low and depressed and sad and that wasn't worth it. I don't think any of us have really experienced that. When you've actually loved someone else, when you've actually done the will of Christ. Now, not to say it doesn't, isn't hard at times to do the will of Christ. I understand that. But does it bring joy? Ultimately, it does. You see this even in Acts 5, verse 41. This is at the end of Acts 5. This is after they were beaten by the, uh, the Sanhedrin again. It says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were rejoicing to do the will of Christ. They were rejoicing to be under the lordship of Christ, whatever the cost was. Now this is very counterintuitive. A mind that is captivated with the values of this age cannot make sense of rejoicing while suffering for Jesus. Can't make sense of it. But Christians who love Jesus can and will make sense of those kinds of situations. It will make sense to us. We will begin to rejoice when we are opposed for the truth. We will rejoice to lay down our lives, to deny ourselves, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever his call is tomorrow. So therefore, brothers and sisters, let us profess that Jesus is Lord of all. Let us certainly do that. And then let us submit our hearts, our minds, and our hands to his daily service, which is our calling as those who follow him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we exalt you as King of kings and Lord of lords. We desire to live faithful to your service We confess that we fail in doing your will from the heart at all times, but we ask that you would send your spirit and strengthen us that we might do your will joyfully, that we might stand for the truth even when we are opposed and might know that you are king at all times and live as you are king. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.